I try to educate about why it is there. It feels like a lot of rules for nothing sometimes to people. But ultimately, there is science behind all of this. And this, it's the science of how does bacteria grow and work and what could be the risk. Hello. Welcome to The Corner Table, a podcast about food and drink in Madison, Wisconsin, produced by the Capital Times. I am your host, Cap Times food editor Lindsay Christians, and this is a series that we're calling Making a Restaurant. With this series, we're looking at how restaurants go from a great idea to opening their doors. It's been a really interesting trip this spring. We started with Caitlin Simnecht, chief creative officer at Food Fight Restaurant Group, who talked about the challenges of opening a restaurant like Bar Coralini, which just opened on Atwood Avenue. I talked with Cricket Redmond at Cricket Design Works about logos and color schemes. I chatted with Melissa Destry of Destry Design Architects about why restaurants have gotten so loud and how to design a successful business. We went over the finance of food with Tara Johnson of the Food Finance Institute. And in the most recent episode, I talked with Brandon Bay about how to write a menu. This week, I am so happy to share the mic with Sherry Schweitzer of Credible Consulting. Sherry's a restaurant consultant and a former health inspector with the county, and she's a very good friend. She is the person restaurants call when they want to start making charcuterie in-house, or they're losing money and they can't figure out why. I think of her as like a restaurant whisperer. I am so glad to have her here this week, and I hope you enjoy this chat. Also, as a quick reminder, we just did a live podcast with Chef Nianika Banda out of Duluth. She spent some time in some Madison restaurants and came back to talk with us at Old Sugar Distillery's Rick House. It was a great chat. We can't wait for you guys to hear it if you didn't make it to that event. That'll be dropping soon. Welcome, Sherry. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming in. I'm really excited to have you here. Hi, it's such a pleasure to be here. I'm so excited. So first of all, for people who may not know you, can you tell us a little bit about what you do? Absolutely. I uh, own a company called Credible Consulting. I started that business about 10 years ago after um, spending a lot of time in restaurant work and also as a health inspector here in Madison. Uh, so what I do with my business is I am a, essentially a private health inspector now and a food safety trainer. So I'll go in and help educate uh, people's teams and uh, also do what's – it's like a mock health inspection. I also help uh, restaurateurs uh, find more money in their business by helping them analyze their operations. Sometimes that's before they open, uh, but more often it's actually after they've been open and maybe are having some troubles. And then lastly, uh, a little bit more on the food safety side again, I work in regulatory work. So we do a lot of writing of regulatory documentation. Um, most people would think of it as things like recall plans or um, a lot of what I write is called a hazard analysis plan that are required, uh, extra levels of food safety required by the state, uh, FDA, USDA. When you go in to do a mock health inspection now, what are some of the most common challenges or problems or sticking points that you notice? That's a good one. So, um, well, the health code, Wisconsin food code, that's 150 pages long. So that alone is really tough. Um, there's always something I can find. Um, and it's the reason it's tough on operators uh, to know all of that. 
The number one uh, thing that causes foodborne illness uh, and the transfer of things like viruses and bacteria is uh, improper hand washing and also improper cooling of food. Most people would understand hand washing. They would realize, okay, you can't touch the food with your hands. You've got to wear gloves. You've got to wash your hands a lot. But actually, improper cooling is uh, a huge one. And we can even do it at, to ourselves at home. If food has to get cooled faster, the bacteria has a chance to grow. Uh, so those are some biggies we see. Uh, when health inspectors go in, we're looking for the major risks. So we're looking at hand wash sinks a lot. So if I see hand wash sink violations involve things like there's no soap here, well, then I can't wash my hands properly. Or maybe the this, maybe this sink's got cold water. You want warm water or you're not going to be encouraged to wash your hands, <laughs> you know. Um, dishwashers, uh, dish machines, I want to call it, uh, are not sanitizing properly. Most dish machines use a chemical uh, for a final sanitizing rinse. We don't do that at home, of course, but we're not feeding 400 people a night. So um, the dish machines sometimes are out of chemical, and then you're not sanitizing the dishes. Other biggies are things like the coolers aren't cold enough. Oh, That right. one's very important and pretty prevalent. I remember we used to have to check them like twice a day or like multiple times. Like I encourage my clients to check them twice a day and just use a log. Just walk around when you first walk, go in, and then maybe before service. Uh, it's... It's tough because they're being opened and closed, and um, it's a hot environment in the kitchen, and it's really tough on equipment. But um, certain bacteria like listeria can grow at 34 degrees, as low as 34. So our refrigerators are 41. Uh, I also encourage listeners to check their refrigerators at home. (laughs) I often hand out thermometers, and people take them home, and they uh, put them in their fridges and come back to me and say, oh, my gosh, you were right. My refrigerator was not 41. I remember we were grilling out once. We were at like APT or something, and Patrick and I had forgotten to bring a temperature gauge for the chicken. Sure. And you just like pulled a thermometer out of your bag. I know. <laughs> that is, that is, I am such a nerd. I do have a little baby thermometer in my purse. But I wonder, the, doing the job that you do as a health inspector, does it affect the way that you dine out? Does it affect the way that you eat out in the world? It, it does. I mean, absolutely. It's, it's like probably the number one question I get. And um, I think ultimately, though, I, I'm an advocate for restaurants and restaurateurs. I love them. I want to support them and explore them. And I love dining out. And, and it's research for me. So I never want it to stop me. Um, you know, that being said, I stay in touch with um, my my colleagues at the Madison Public Health. And uh, I one of my my tricks and tips for listeners is uh, what I use. You can look up any restaurant's health inspection online here in Madison. Madison, it's Madison and Dane County. So, and the website for that is publichealthmdc.com. So, madisondanecounty.com. You just go under food safety, you type in the name of the restaurant, and for some of them, if they've been in operation for several years, they implemented that system a few years back. So you might be able to see several years' worth of inspections. It can be a little bit tough because you don't want to, you have to take some of it with a bit of a grain of salt. Uh, I don't want to say that, you know, there's one number of violations that's a line in the sand. It can be a snapshot of that day. The cooler goes down that day. Of course, that's the day the health inspector shows oh, up. You know, yeah. I often say there's never a good day for the health inspector to show. (laughs) People don't really want to see me coming. Uh, But we write everything. We we try to write as health inspectors, we try to write everything we see because it could be 
just unique to that day, but it could be historical. Uh, so that's one resource I use. And then the one that I think a lot of people know about that they've heard before is look at the bathrooms. Look at the environment. If it looks pretty dirty, the kitchen's probably not any cleaner. But I do want to say what I think of dirty and sometimes what I, what I might see on Yelp reviews or people think that dirty is might not be dirty to a health inspector. Um, if the if, say, the garbage can's overflowing with paper towel, that's not a health code violation. That's probably not going to get anybody sick. That might look messy, but I'm going to look at that hand wash sink. I'm going to make sure that sink, does that sink have soap? Um, and is the sink itself dirty? Is the bathroom dirty? Because if the, if the owners don't care enough to keep the bathroom clean for their customers, they probably maybe don't care enough about the kitchen. And in the, at the end of the day, if I really want to eat somewhere and uh, even, you know, I maybe even have a concern, I might just have to put the blinders on. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, I love to eat out. So, I, and I, you know, if I travel, I want to eat out. I want to explore ethnic food and things that, you know, places that might, um, and I don't want to, not to pick on ethnic restaurants, but th- there's a little bit more ignorance sometimes um, when it comes to food safety because it's cultural. Um, but uh, I just, I love it. So I still want to try it. <laughs> I want to try everything. Yeah. I remember when I was working in a kitchen, um, like when I was in college, that there be, being all these rules about like where the rags had to be and the solution that they had to be in. And also like I would sometimes like have, you know, like a plastic cup with my water in it and that could not be on the work surface. That's true. And 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 so thinking about how germs move around a kitchen or move around in our lives, thinking about that was a different framing for me. It's absolutely true, and I think that's the hard, one of the hard parts is getting people to frame it, getting people to think about it. Sometimes they just don't realize. One of the biggest violations we see nowadays is with our phones. Oh. Our phones are filthy. They're so dirty, and we're touching them all the time, and we don't. I had to add it to food safety training. Ten years ago, we didn't have phones and use phones the way we do. We didn't carry them and use them for everything. And I had to, I had to add it to training. Like, I've definitely had to add wash your hands after you're touching your phone because, I mean, the reality is I even have a poster I give restaurants now that has a silhouette of a person sitting on the toilet with their phone because I bet you 75% of us are doing it, you yes. know? Oh, my gosh. That's true. And... We're in there with our phones in the bathroom. So uh, it's, yeah, it's, it, there's a lot of things like you have to draw people's perception to, wow, that might have just contaminated something. If you like The Corner Table, check out our other podcasts. On Wedge Issues, Cap Time's opinion editor Jesse Opoyan dives into state government from policy ideas to lawmakers' favorite beers. Then follow along with Eric, Abby, and Lisa as they explore the ins and outs of city politics and policy on the Mad Splainers podcast every other week, wherever you get your podcasts.
I heard a lot for a while about chefs getting really excited about charcuterie and like making charcuterie in their kitchens. And I know that you've done some work around that of sort of helping chefs prepare to do that or, or get, you know, the proper certifications that they need. Um, and I wonder if you can talk a little bit about charcuterie or other like specialty uses in kitchens that might be a little bit different or more challenging? Yeah, so the state health department, they have a division of food safety and they have a list of food methods, I guess I want to call it, that they consider special processes. Uh, Charcuterie, making your own charcuterie is one of them. Uh, Other things include fermentation, uh, smoking, um, curing. Uh, Curing, uh, charcuterie could fall under that, but you also might maybe cure your own corned beef. Um, Making uh, things like kimchi or kombucha, um, sous vide uh, cooking also, or vacuum packing. Oh, that's really big right now, That's very big. When you vacuum pack food, you're taking out all the air. And you're making it susceptible to bacteria that live in an air, a non-oxygen or anaerobic conditions. Ah. So it's like canning. So some people know botulism from canning, but botulism can come into vacuum packing. It's like a bully. And uh, if the bully um, beats up all the small bullies, then the big bully uh, can really, really win and take over everything. Uh, and that's what botulism does when it's in an environment where none of, the, none of the bacteria that need air can be living in there. So it takes over. So the health department, the state, requires um, generally what's called a HACCP plan. Uh, it's H-A-C-C-P. It stands for you're analyzing hazards and critical control points. And you're looking at the whole process from start to finish and, and analyzing where can not just bacterial uh, or like pathogens come in, but also where can physical and chemical contamination possibly come in. It's quite a big process. Of, it's quite a big plan, uh, documentation, lots of logs, operating procedures, uh, I come in often and help people write those, uh, get those in place properly, get those, uh, help them kind of be a bridge in the, um, between the regulatory side and the client because, again, there's so many more rules, way beyond the 150 pages I mentioned with the food code. It's a lot more. So I think a lot of people stop doing these things because it's a bit of a big hill to climb. I usually recommend they do them if they're going to go all in. If you think you just want to vacuum pack one thing, honestly, my advice is it's just not worth all the work. I can imagine it being a real mental challenge for someone who's just like, I was just excited to make my own, you know, uh, pate or salami or whatever it is. And and then there's all of these, like writing down the temperature, writing down the moisture. Co- or, yeah, it's a lot more work. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's absolutely a ton. It's, I, it's hard sometimes that chefs can be frustrated. I try to educate about why it is there. It feels like a lot of rules for nothing sometimes to people. But ultimately, there is science behind all of this. And it's the science of how does bacteria grow and work and what could be the risk. So they want you to just really think about those risks. When a restaurant comes to you and says, we are struggling, things aren't going well, can you help us figure out why and how? What are some of the first things that you do? Like, what are your kind of first steps with someone? Sure, yeah. One of my first steps is find out where the money's going. I ask them if they're tracking their food and labor costs. 
I ask them, do you know your costs? And often people will say to me, oh, yeah, we do. And then the second question is, are you doing inventory? And a lot of times the answer is, no, I'm not. And then I'll say, yeah, I sound like a bully here, but then you don't know your costs. <laughs> uh, it's just absolutely true. If you are not tracking your food and labor costs, if you don't have your recipes costed out, if you don't know, and this is not a, it's an ongoing process because your vendors might be changing pricing on you. You might think that grilled cheese sandwich is costing you $2 and you're charging 6 and that's great. That's your 30%-ish, you know. But um, suddenly the cheese price went up and you didn't throw it into your recipe and you haven't done, updated your food costs in a year or two. Um, so those are, those are big ones. Uh, one of my jobs is sort of coach and sometimes it becomes a therapist because I start digging deeper and asking personal questions like, what scares you the most right now? And then I just sit back and listen. And I have had a lot of people tell me some sad, tough stories. Um, they might be struggling with uh, how they're running their business personally. Uh, they may not have enough help. Um, or they might be running their business with their family. And that can be a big struggle. And sometimes the struggle is employees. I will say that's over the 10 years I've been in business, it's my number one complaint that people, when I sit down to talk to them, they say to me, my employees and the management, oh my gosh, I didn't know I had to manage people. I didn't, I didn't see it. I didn't realize. I think that's so critical to realize if you get into the restaurant business, you are going to become a manager. Uh, you either have to be the manager or you have to hire someone to be the manager and somebody's got to be the bad guy. I do help people to a certain degree with, with employees. Um, I write employee manuals. I help them analyze if they have issues. Um, sometimes issues with businesses running poorly are the owner is being too good to the employees. I have heard that, yeah. actually, yeah. I mean, it's – and somebody – I mean, somebody hearing this is going to say, oh, my gosh, you couldn't possibly be too good to your employees. But I don't mean it that way. I mean that you can be good to them only as much as you can afford. So I've worked with operators who are giving shift drinks, who are giving free food. Every time a person works, they pay for the uniforms and people lose the uniforms and then they buy another one. Um, it just becomes a running hose. And, and it's fine if you're doing it, but you have to track it. Again, you cannot know where the money's going if you're not tracking it. And if things are getting quite ugly, uh, I recommend HR firms. I recommend you get, you get some ad hoc help. Restaurants have, almost never have an HR department. I, I work with a good one in town, uh, Lake Effect HR. It's an all-woman-run business. Uh, lawyers and HR people with tons of experience, many, many years of experience. When you talk about being too good to your employees, um, I or or basically running your business in a way that's more from your heart than from your head, which I yes, think is good a way to say it. it. It's it's a good impulse, right? It's a generous and and humane kind of impulse. Mm -hmm. um, but I think about burnout in that context as well, and it's just it seems like it could get really complicated really quickly. And so I think it's interesting that you have these partnerships of people that you work with to say. Sounds like you need some HR help. Here's who I recommend. Right. Yeah. Um, at the end of the day, you only get to have a restaurant as long as you can pay for it. And it's it's a balance of 
oh, I want to be good, I want to do this, I want to be the good guy, but somebody's got to be the bad guy, and you've got to make the tough decisions because the business has to run. And if you run out of cash flow, your employees that you love will have no job. And it can happen fast. We've seen a restaurant boom in Madison over the past few years. It's kind of slowing down, I think, a bit. But we still have this kind of burst of of restaurants, and, and it's sort of made the staffing issues more challenging. And I wonder, when you're looking at the scene here in Madison, what kinds of things do you think are going to make for a successful restaurant long term? Um, you know, what advice would you give someone who came to you and said, we're opening a restaurant? I think some of the big tricks that I see a restaurant, the ones that are making it successful and work and long term, the people who own it are there. They are there, they are present, they are in it, or they have company or corporate oversight. Uh, you look at franchises like, um, well, I, I think of Culver's, it's close to home. The, the Culver's is a very, very integral franchise. They are involved with their franchisees, and you cannot become a franchisee unless you just do a ton of stuff up front before you become one. Um, they are setting people up for success, so it's that oversight. Um, but if you're an owner and you're there working, you're going to keep an eye on things. You're going to keep an eye on people, the numbers, the quality, the consistency. What are the bad behaviors going on? Um, I think refreshing the environment every few years. Even if you have a massive successful place, I was in Marigold Kitchen recently, and there were all there were a whole bunch of little nuances that I saw that were new. Marigold Kitchen probably doesn't need to update their brand. They're so busy. They're amazing. I love them, but they felt like they did, and it is important and it is an investment because it keeps you fresh to your customer. I mean, I did. I think enjoy my. In- experience there that day even a little bit more because things felt new and the food stays consistent and amazing. Uh, But refreshing your menu every now and then also is important. Uh, I don't want to tell people to jump on every single trend. That, That would be impossible. But I do think people should watch the trends and talk to your customers. What are, are you giving your people what they want? I, growing up, we didn't eat romaine lettuce salads and we sure didn't eat kale salads. It was iceberg. I grew up with iceberg. <laughs> right. We grew up with iceberg. But now it's kale salads. Uh, and if, again, if you have a POS system, you should be running reports. You should know. Uh, I can't tell you how many chefs. Uh, if I had 10 chefs in a room, I bet I could say to them, what are your top three selling items? And a lot of them would not know the top three. Not exactly. They would not get it right from what their POS system says, which is a point of sale, uh, and and what I'm looking at on paper. And they would know one or two. But the thing is you have to look at those. You have to understand what's selling. So changing it up, keeping it fresh, um, keeping your costs in line, it sounds like, is a big, big, big deal. And I do wonder, like, do you think that we're starting to hit a restaurant saturation point? Does it feel that way to you based on your conversations with restaurateurs? It has felt like that to me for, I have, I feel like I've been talking about it for at least three or four years. <laughs> um, and it's, it, truly, it's, it's getting worse. Uh, the saturation point is not just in the locations and the number of food and drink licenses out there, um, but it's in the fact that we don't have enough labor. I think there's probably enough humans <laughs> in Madison, but the humans don't want to work in restaurants. 
always. There's multiple things, and you did a great uh, long article on it. Um, there's multiple issues. Uh, it's not just one. It's not just, oh, we're not paying enough. It's They don't want to work in restaurants because we're not paying enough. No, it's it's hard work. And there's there's other work out there that might not be as hard. But I will tell you, I have been in the restaurant business since I was 14, and I have never met people who are better people. I, I have worked in I got a degree in science. I went to work in science. I have been in biotech, chemistry. Uh, I've had multiple jobs. And the people in the restaurant industry are family. They they are some of the hardest working people and the kindest, warmest people you will meet. I think that they have hospitality running through their veins, the successful ones. And that's a question I – that's one of the things I ask people who want to open a new restaurant. Do you think you have hospitality running through your veins? Because you're going to need it. Are you going to need to hire people who do? I think that they're addicted in a positive way to the lifestyle, to the people that they serve. I call it tableside manner. It, it's, it, it, it's equivocal, if not more, than like a really amazing doctor or nurse. Um, you have to every night put on a show. It's also been my, my sister-in-law's in the theater, and I know you've been in the theater. Um, I've heard people compare restaurants to theater work, the family and the um, every night you're putting on a show. Yeah. And every night you got to put on a smile no matter how bad your day was. <laughs> and uh, that is work. If people want to find you, where can they find you? They can find me on – they can call, Give me a call. And my, I have uh, the new restaurant, uh, Bar Coralini, that's opening. My office is uh, just above it, which is very <laughs> exciting. Uh, of course, that's a coincidence. But, uh, yeah, I would be located above an office um, just on Atwood there in the Atwood neighborhood and certainly online um, at uh, credconsulting.com. Thank you so much for coming in. Oh, it's so fun to be here. This has been The Corner Table podcast about food and drink in Madison, Wisconsin, produced by the Capital Times. We get podcasting help from Eric Lawrenson. You can follow us on Facebook and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Get restaurant reviews, news, and other great stuff at captimes.com, including a recent story I did about the Badger Prairie Needs Network, and I wrote up a CBD dinner at Surya Cafe. And of course, check out our live podcast taping with Chef Nianika Banda, coming soon. Once again, and as always, I am your host, food editor Lindsay Christians. My wish for you this week is chilled melon soup, perfect for summer. Cheers!